Hello and welcome to FinTV, another episode of uh, Future Insights Network's podcast. Today I've got two guests, which is very exciting actually, and we're going to be talking about digital transformation. Uh, joining me first off, ladies first, let me introduce Leah Pickering, who is the Program Director for Global Commercial Operations at AstraZeneca. Uh, I am also joined by Luke Mullins, who is the CEO at Volta. They are manufacturing change experts. Uh, both of you, welcome to uh, FinTV. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Um, why don't we start with you, Leah? If you don't mind maybe talking to us about uh, your journey so far and maybe then afterwards, Luke, um, tell us a little bit about yourselves. Great, thank you. So it's, it, first off, it's so nice to be here. Um, my name's Leah Pickering. Like uh, Maria said, I'm currently working for AstraZeneca and I've moved more towards into the commercial space for my current role. However, previously I've spent um, quite a few different roles rotating through different areas of the operations business of AstraZeneca. Um, so I've worked in procurement, um, manufacturing as a, as a um, production manager, um, quality assurance, and also a lot of time in global supply chain um, and implementing large scale global supply chain projects. So it's great to be here. So you've got a wide, wide variety of experiences, actually. You could talk about supply chain, manufacturing, et cetera. Thank you for that. Uh, yeah. Luke, what about you? Yeah, so I'm the CEO of Volta, as you, as you rightly said, and, and thanks very much for having me on the podcast. It's uh, great to talk to you. So Volta is basically a consultancy for uh, manufacturing, and it delivers uh, change. So we're one of the leaders in, in affecting those change in manufacturers. My personal experience is I've been in manufacturing now for 16 years um, and I've always been fascinated by new technology and how it's delivered through organizations it's not just as simple as bringing it in one day and plunking it there and, and expecting it to, to work you know my, my, my experience has always been around affecting change not just from a, a people's perspective and um, but leadership and throughout the organization as a whole you know over the 15 years we're with some of the biggest companies like AstraZeneca, Tyco, uh, even the Royal Air Force at times as well. But you touch upon a topic that's really interesting and more importantly, something that you and I have spoken about before. I'm very passionate about this. Uh, it'd be great to get your opinion on this, um, which is a lot, there's a lot of talk, a lot of hype around digital transformation uh, and everything that comes with it. Digitization, digitalization. I mean, I've had debates about what way to pronounce it, but it's, it, everybody always seems to be pretty fixated on uh, tech, you know, whether it's machine learning, whether it's AI, what role do you believe, do you think culture or trans or leadership uh, or even business processes have in digital transformation? Well, I say, you know, digital transformation is effectively just a word at the end of the day. It's just a, a label that we put on the current phase of manufacturing that's happening globally at the moment. Now, put, to put simply, digital transformation is just introduction of new technology. But to introduce that new technology, you have to be prepared to accept it wholly, otherwise it will fail. So, for example, if you put in a data analytics piece of software, well, if your people don't know how to operate that and aren't trained on it and don't know why they're collecting that data and don't know what it's for, the whole project's going to fall to its knees because the benefits that you predicted are going to happen just won't be delivered. So it's, it, we have to be very careful when we say digital transformation. You have to understand what it means to your company first and actually where your company is going. And then you can select the right technology and then you can bring your people on a journey because it's, it's about a journey. It's not about uh, a destination. You know, implement new technology, there we go, walk away. It's, it's a continuous journey. And, that, and that's, that's 
in its simplest nutshell, it's not about digital transformation. It's about how do we improve every single day? That's more mindset than technology. What do you think, Leah? Yeah, it's interesting because actually I've been reflecting recently on some kind of specific areas that, you know, Luke's mentioning overall the fact that we need to consider holistically what we do in terms of technology transformation in companies. And I think, you know, some of the technologies that we're bringing through, unless we bring the people change through at the same time or even quicker, we actually won't be able to leverage those technologies. So I think a really good example of that would be um, maybe trust in data. And actually, you know, that's currently an issue. I, I used to work in, in supply chain analytics and I, I would constantly get um, a lot of scepticism from senior leaders when they receive data that they didn't necessarily expect to see. Now, the value okay. of data is you don't necessarily see what you expect to see. That's why we use data. Um, but I think with the increasing complexity in how we gather data, how data is processed, you know, leveraging AI, for example, unless you have a very deep understanding of how that data is captured and processed and where it's coming from, I believe actually that, that trust in data is going to decrease because of less understanding. So unless we can enable senior leaders to understand the technology and take them on the journey to kind of understand it enough to trust it, then the implementation of any analytics is, is not actually going to provide any, any improvement because the people that are actually supposed to be making decisions off the back of that data won't want to because they can't trust it. So that's a really key example where it's so important. Yeah, it's a perfect example. You know, if you're collecting data of, of a, say, a, a multi-million pound production machine uh, that, that might be spitting out 15,000 units every, every hour, actually, if you start putting data collection systems on there that give you live feedback, what you might find is initially you thought your OEE might be at say 30%, but actually it's more like 15. And actually for, for organization to accept that they have a lower performance level than they actually, they, they think they do based on new data, that's quite a hard pill to swallow sometimes. And sometimes it takes a little bit of, of standing back holistically and thinking, okay, what does this data mean? How do we make decisions based on it? And actually that's part of the digital transformation journey. It's, it's not just about, okay, we need to collect data and here's a better way of doing it, but think about what impact does that make to our business? If we then tell our customers that we're actually running at a 15% OE instead of 30% OE, what's the impact there? Um, because yes, we've got new technology and we've got new data and, and, and it's fantastic, but actually, if we don't trust it, if we don't believe in it, if we can't make decisions based off it, then the impact you're going to see is very, very little. And you've actually just... Sorry, go ahead, Maria. <laughs> go ahead, Leah. I'm just going to ask a question about data. Okay. I, I hope you don't mind. I was thinking of taking it in a slightly different direction because Luke's really just touched on something that I think is the underpinning foundation of culture which is leadership and i think yeah. with the increase in robotics and you know the increase in in technology perhaps reducing the typical manual work that that people would be doing on the shop floor you know the obvious consequence to that is that those people are then able to actually engage in activities that are more strategic or creative in nature so old styles of leadership that you would classically see potentially within manufacturing environments aren't going to fly anymore. Um, you know, you need to have a psychologically safe environment to allow people to really excel in these new tasks that they're going to be performing. 
So you need leadership styles that are going to actually encourage and bring out that um, creativity, that innovation, um, and the new ways of thinking that people are going to need to have that come alongside that, that technology innovation that's going to come through within manufacturing. Absolutely. Well, this, this, is a, this leads into the question that I was going to ask, funnily enough, which is how do you think the industry has changed? I mean, it's a broad question, isn't it? In the last five to 10 years, for instance, uh, you've talked about data playing a pivotal mm. role. Do you think data is becoming much more important uh, as we become more data aware? Want to go? Uh, is that me? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to take that there? Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, so I think, I think that probably one of the main things that I've noticed is that as you have individuals coming through that see the value in using data to make decisions or see the value of technology creating efficiency in manufacturing processes, I think people are starting to take much more notice of that. And actually, the perceived value of technology is increasing day on day. However, there is a flip side of that that's potentially negative, which is a lot of the time I, I see people using technology buzzwords and creating hype around certain technologies when actually what we should be focusing on are the problems and then understanding those enough to know where technology might be an appropriate solution. So I think increased awareness is brilliant and I've seen that happen, but actually it's not always changed for the better in a way. Yeah. And I think, you know, not just increased awareness internally, but also externally. So customers yeah. are becoming much more aware now of how their products are being manufactured, whereas previously they might not have been. And actually that that has that carries with it a corporate responsibility for, for, for ourselves that we need to be more aware of the impact that we're making, not just from a, a you know a global perspective, but an individual perspective as well. So how are we impacting our customers with new technology? And actually the past five, ten years has, has seen that culture shift in our society that says we care about where our things are being produced and how we're consuming and how we're, we're you know, eating food and shopping and all those things. And actually that's shifting the focuses of business to be more responsible, to be more reactive, to be more agile. And what you're seeing is SMEs now are in a position where they can take that market share off enterprise firms because they can be more agile. They can move quicker. They can move uh, with more social responsibility because they haven't got the hierarchy in place that some enterprises uh, do. And again, that comes down to, to leadership. You know, have they got uh, leaders that are capable of making that, that social shift and technology and culture into, into um, the, the new times that are, are ahead of us now? And actually, Luke, you've touched on something there, which I, I think is really important as well in terms of market share, because I don't believe that people see technology now as a way to gain competitive advantage and they shouldn't see it like that anymore. I think they see it as a way to actually stay relevant in a market. So that's a definite shift in perception, which I'm seeing. Well, I was going to ask you about, about how the opportunities that are, you know, touching about what, what Luke said. Uh, the changing business models, the agility that SMEs are able to display. Are we entering an area, an era, or have we entered an era already where the opportunities created for the small to mid-sized market could potentially dethrone uh, large existing players if they don't adapt? I mean, I, I think we're seeing that that now, um, and and actually, what's happening is the the enterprise firms are looking at that and seeing that happen, and going, what do we do about this? Um, you know, take for example robotics. Okay, you know, it used to be in the hands of only enterprise firms. 
30, 40 years ago and used to be part of 120, 150, you know, 200 million pound investment sometimes. And actually, fundamentally now, robotics, 15, 20,000 pounds, you can have a robot up and running within two weeks. That shifts the, the, the capacity for SMEs into being able to produce more, but not just more, but quicker, and at the same time, reducing their overheads and their costs. And carrying with that then, the agility and the leadership, because they have less hierarchy, their, their ability to, to embrace technology, and actually, fundamentally, they haven't been doing the same thing for the same times, you know, for 30, 40 years. They're not used to that ingrained systems that they've had in place for years and years and years. They can adapt very, very quickly. And because of that, they're taking market shares off enterprise firms. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's happening now, and actually, that shift in, in business drives change and, and change is happening exponentially quicker because of it. Okay, so let's talk about practicalities then. Let's get some practicalities. What can a manufacturing director or a production director operations, you know, someone who is probably in a large enterprise business, what can they do practically to stay relevant, stay competitive and adapt? It begins with, with knowing what the future holds and almost crystal ball in it because nobody knows what the future holds but you, you are in a position as a business owner to say okay what is it we need to do in the next 5 10 15 20 years and actually you know it's it's very cliche but what's our purpose what's our mission what, you know what what is, what is it we need to achieve and actually that gets thrown about all the time but if you ask a managing director that nine times out of ten they can't answer you because every six months it changes and that shift in um, expectations and shifting demands, shifting volumes, changes so quickly that you can't set that standard sometimes. And, and what I've found in my experience is that as soon as you commit to a path and bring your team along with you, your leadership team with you, the people below them start to automatically do things that are aligned to that vision and to that purpose. So, an operator, for example, will then start to understand the impact that they're having at senior level to increase new technology. So, for example, if we want to say, you know, we need a massive investment in technology, if they can communicate that across all levels of the hierarchy as to why it's needed and the purpose and what it's going to hoping to achieve, the people who are going to use that technology on a day-to-day -day basis will immediately start to understand why they're doing it. And, and you know, it will go away from oh, I'm worried that this robot might take my, my job, for example, to I know what we need to improve and we need to embrace this and we need to move forward. And that then permeates but, the rest of the, the business. Let me, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Let me, let me ask you both this question. Isn't that just a communications issue? You know, and that's, that's an age-old issue. That, that's been happening for 20 years, 50 years, whatever, however many years we've had factories. Leah, what do you think? Yeah, and I probably would have answered the question slightly differently because I... I, I do think that having a strategy is something that is a given regardless of the direction that your business is going in. And, and for me, it's, again, coming back to the leadership aspects, it's, it's a shift in how you actually work with your people. And I think Luke touched on this, and it's probably the most important thing. I mean, the, the practical advice I would give is, A, first, don't believe the hype, like I said earlier look at your business problem and only solve it with technology when that technology is appropriate. Don't just choose something that sounds cool. Um, the second would be, be humble as a leader. And actually, I, I'm kind of tired of hearing 
people claim to be experts about technology or certain technologies or trying to, you know, say we need this, we need that. I would love, and it would be so refreshing for me to hear a leader say, do you know what? I don't know anything about RPA. I don't know anything about AI, but I want us to explore and learn together about how we can implement those technologies within our company if we believe that they're going to be successful and help us do more with what we've got. Um, and I think that also helps empower people. It takes the fear out of things, like Luke said. They're going on a journey together. So, you know, leadership, humility, and, and them leveraging their, their staff, the skills their staff have, the knowledge their staff have, um, and, and actually looking for the right skills as well. So looking for people that can learn quickly, have breadth, can understand a business problem, can understand high-level technicality, but be able to kind of convert a business problem into a technical solution mm -hmm. you don't need people with years of manufacturing experience to be able to do that you need people that can talk to manufacturing people to understand the problem to be able to then do that so i think they're looking for different people now too well that was going to be one of the next questions i was going to ask you as a woman in manufacturing uh and someone with the breadth of experience that you know a wealth of experience that you have across manufacturing supply chain operations production etc how did you find getting into this role as a woman and what can companies do to attract more diversity uh, to these roles? So I personally was really lucky actually to be um, given the role within manufacturing as a production line manager. Um, and I was offered the opportunity by my company after being on the graduate program. Um, so I did reflect at that time, however, that Actually, it's very unlikely that I would have been offered the role had I not been on the graduate program within my company. Um, and I think this kind of starts to get to the crux of the problem because I actually probably wouldn't have ever considered getting into manufacturing before it was something that was offered as part of that program. Um, first of all, because I don't think there's so much visible leadership from a female perspective, um, you know, you do what you see. And if I don't see any amazing women manufacturers, it's unlikely that I'll think that's something that I can do. I've always um, said that manufacturing has an image issue. You know, I agree. Has an image issue. Come on, as little girls, as little girls, we don't sit there and dream. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to join the industry and, and become a manufacturer. You know, yeah. it's just something that uh, that we think about. Yeah. So not only is that the image issue, I think there's also an issue issue um, in the way that the culture within manufacturing currently works. Um, so obviously I have been blessed, like you say, to have worked in a breadth of different roles across AstraZeneca. And I would say, and, and, and other companies too, and I would say that um, the culture within the manufacturing organization is unique. Mm -hmm. um, and I hate to put it bluntly, but behind the times, to be honest. Um, you know, I do see more authoritative leadership. I do see more um, kind of, traditional ways of management that maybe are more off-putting to somebody like me who would want to be more collaborative in, in ways of working. And I think there still are stigmas around the perception of women's skills in terms of technical capabilities when they're just not based on fact. It's just based on, again, what people see. People see a lot of men in manufacturing. People see a lot of men in engineering. They therefore assume women can't do those jobs and treat them as such. Yeah, and it's yeah. just not the case. Yeah. 
But the one thing I can say about AstraZeneca is I've, I've, I've actually been really inspired by some brilliant examples that I did encounter when I was within the manufacturing space at AstraZeneca. So that's, that's one thing that I was really uplifted by because there were some brilliant examples. Luke, you were going to say something? Yeah, I think, I think Leah's hit the nail on the head there in terms of, you know, it's about perceptions. It's about, um, you know, some of, the, some of the reasons where we don't see that diversity is because of the, the, the impact that that's had over culture over, you know, years and years and years. You know, typically you would see, um, the, you know, the males in the, the manufacturing environment, and it's just not the case because actually fundamentally manufacturing has changed and it's changed so substantially over the past few years that it's just not recognisable anymore. And those social stigmas actually are just that, the social stigmas, they're not based in fact. Um, so, you know, when we, when we talk about women in manufacturing, actually, you know, it would be fantastic to see women, more women in manufacturing. And actually, a lot of the consultants that work for me are in fact women because they can, they can break that stigma down and actually impact people where typically actually you wouldn't you'd expect a man to, to be doing that and that's just not the case anymore you know um we need a more diverse group of people in manufacturing because it's such a more diverse demands now that we never had before you know i had someone in one of our events describe it in a very interesting way which was that supply chain and manufacturing used to be seen as sort of lifting type warehousey type factory jobs that required yeah heavy, you know, right nowadays, especially with the, you know, advancement of technology, uh, you don't need to be lifting and don't need to be working in dark in these factories. Do you, it is about thinking. It is about adapting, uh, adapting to business models, to new technology. I mean, you know, one of the things you said, Leah, was about how you really have to be able to take this information, dissect it and turn it into a good strategy that's a, that's a thinking job and so you can do it no matter what you look like no matter what background you've had you don't need to have a background in manufacturing which is what you said yeah. um, change the topic a little bit and move it around to how you two came to work together um so basically i was at astrazeneca as a manufacturing manager um just at a similar time that me and uh, that lee was there as well so i think i Correct me if I'm wrong, Lee, I probably was there six months before you started. We just got introduced yeah. to each other, um, basically through that connection. So, you know, I, I started off as a, as a typical engineer doing apprenticeships and manual labour and maintenance and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, worked my way up through project positions, then into management positions, and, and eventually was offered a, a position at AstraZeneca. Um, so, yeah, we, we worked together on a number of different projects, absolutely, we, with data analytics and with um, um, uh, automated data batch collection systems. I think that's when our collaboration really increased, actually, quite a lot, because this comes back to what we were talking about earlier with cultural change. I think Luke and I both went through a, a large-scale technological advancement program within the manufacturing area that we worked in. Um, and I think the reason that we started working more closely together was because actually there were a limited amount of people that showed too much interest in engaging with the new technology. And, um, you know, Luke and I actually fortunately were both pretty proactive about getting on board and we would teach each other and help each other and say, oh yeah, did you call, did you see this cool new way of gathering this data about this batch? You know, here's how you track the history of where this component moved through the factory. So I think we started to work together by learning from each other um, because we both found ourselves in quite 
a difficult situation with um, being thrown into the deep end in a way. Um, and we both, I guess, saw a similar desire in each other to learn about this new technology. So that's kind of where the um, relationship kind of developed as, as colleagues. Yeah, and, now, and now you're both on different sides of, uh, well, different sides of the fence, really. So, uh, you know, we've, you're in, uh, in, uh, in, in a company, large company like AstraZeneca, and, and you, Luke, you're on the other side, the dark side of the consultants. <laughs> uh, how, how does, how, Leah, maybe this is a question for you. How do you, when you are looking at a project uh, or implementing a project within your business. I know a lot of companies tend to look at doing things themselves internally. How do you get support internally or how do you even start to look at working externally with someone like Luke? So I think actually previous role to the one that I'm currently doing, I was working on large scale um, strategic supply chain projects and programs. And actually we were engaging with external consultancy firms because we recognized the benefit of working with them so I, I i take a very balanced approach to this whole conversation actually i can really see the benefit of working with consultancy firms and i think if it's done right it can be really successful um because a i think they bring a really nice neutrality to a situation um you know it's very easy if you're working internally for people to get wrapped up in the emotion of conversations or get wrapped up in the political landscape. Um, and I think having a consultant come in, they can really dig down into the facts and, and actually diagnose a situation in a, in a lot more effective way. Um, and I think also the other benefit would be um, the ability to leverage information and experience that they've gained from working with other companies. They can see what's worked well. They can see what hasn't worked well. They can leverage the, the network that they have to understand how to bring something into a company. So I think that's brilliant. On the flip side, I would say that something I've seen, which, you know, if, if a consultant can nail this, I think it would be absolutely amazing. I think there's a real opportunity where I've seen um, things fall down before, where the consultant's processes and ways of working don't necessarily gel well with the way of working of the company that they're coming into. And I've personally experienced it and it's been really difficult to actually get a result that you're happy with because it's, it's as if there's some ego around it, like, well, our process that we're bringing you are the best. Oh, no, but our internal processes are, are better. And I think it's kind of a, a, a whole being the greater of the sum of its parts type conversation that could happen where you take the best of both. And as long as each party is, is willing to be flexible, coming together and working together can really be very effective. But it doesn't happen often, if I'm completely honest. No, I, 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 I can, I'm sure that we have all, everyone here and everyone listening will probably, you know, can, can talk about the number of fiascos they've been involved with or situations that have gone really wrong. You're right. You get companies that come in and say, well, I'm bringing you, you know, you're paying me good money, so you're going to implement this. You're going to have to re-overhaul everything you're doing, change it up completely, and we know best. Uh, and equally, you get companies, people sitting in your position, Leah, who will say, sorry, we know best because uh, this is the way it's always been done or this is the way it's been done for 50 years, 20 years, etc. So, you, you know, you, you, uh, you've got to pick the right consultants. You've got to pick someone with, 
uh, an ability to look at things holistically, uh, an ability to, um, to be able to compromise. Uh, but I think one of the things that you said earlier, Luke, it was about the ability to actually listen to people and look at the culture and look at what's possible uh, and communicate, you know? Exactly. I think it comes almost full circle to what, what Lee was saying in the beginning, where it's about being humble, right? And, and it's about you're, you're trying to affect change within an organization because that's what they're employing you to do. Well, you can't affect change by coming in with a sledgehammer and saying, this is the way it should be done. That, that's just not, a, a, particularly in, in, you know, nowadays, it's just not the way things are, are done. You're being brought to a company nine times out of 10 because of the experiences you have across multiple different fields and that they think they can learn something from you. And you need to be able to communicate those learnings in, a, in such a way that you can bring people on that journey. And that's what consultants are there for, right? They're, they're there to, to teach and to learn, not to implement and to do. Because actually once, once a consultant leaves, you're left with whatever they've done. And if they've not done a, a good job and if they've, they've left a negative impact, then you're going to be left with that. And, and it's something that, you know, you can, you can find examples the world over of bad consultants where they've come in and tried to change things because they know better or they, they, they feel like they have to deliver something because they're being paid to. And actually it's about being humble, right? So, so we've said no to projects that we don't feel that we're technically capable of delivering. Um, and actually we've said no, because actually you need someone that's not in our skill set. And that's about being humble. It's about acknowledging what you know and being able to transfer those learnings. And that's what I think that a consultant should do. So when we say you know, we're a consultancy, what we like to say is that we're, we're experts at affecting change in manufacturing um, because of those exact reasons. So the ability to influence and to teach uh, is really what our main job is. You know, we don't all have to be engineers, but we do have to have those communication skills that really sets us apart. Leah, let me ask you a question with regards to um, the future. You know, mm -hmm. we, what, what do you think the future of manufacturing looks like in um, the next five to ten years? Uh, and, um, and what would you like to see happen, I think? Oh, I did prepare for this, but let me check again what I wrote down. <laughs> oh, dear. We can edit this. What did you say? We can edit this bit out, it's fine. Yeah, exactly. That's why I'm glad it's not live. I'm glad it's not live. We'll put it in the the next yeah. <laughs> All right, good. Where am I going? Right, I'm going back to you guys. Yeah, so next mm. next five to ten years, I maybe I'm maybe I'm biased in this, but I actually see there being more need for people that have a breadth of experience. Because I think with the increase in the level of data that you'll be getting from your manufacturing processes, you will need to understand how that impacts the whole end-to-end -end supply chain of a product. And I, I, I don't just mean supply chain in terms of, you know, getting a product from A to B. It, in fact, maybe life cycle would be a better term to use because as you continue manufacturing a product, you can gain information about that that then you can use to inform kind of future iterations of product development that come through. And I think classically, manufacturing is relatively siloed in terms of organizational um, kind of boundaries. I actually see those boundaries being broken down because of necessity. 
And in order to supply the customers what they want, in our, in our case, an AstraZeneca patients, which is, you know, the most important thing, in order to give them the best possible outcomes, we need to make sure that we are using that information to continuously improve not just processes, but also products and services that we offer. And in order to do that, those functional silos that kind of classically exist in big companies need to come down. And I think the way to do that is to actually increase mobility across the different areas, allow people to get visibility of the end-to-end view of a company, um, and, and really to encourage that sharing and collaboration. It's um, Maybe I don't see it happening, but I, I see it as a need to happen, actually. And what are, the, what are the key things that can happen right away to help uh, you know, the listeners uh, prepare themselves for something like that? So this is actually something that I, I feel really passionate about. And I think it's, it's all down to hiring practices. So a lot of the time you look at job descriptions and it says things like must have five years experience doing X, must have 10 years experience doing Y. In my intro, I already said that I wouldn't have got my manufacturing job if I didn't have the position on the graduate program because I didn't have that experience. Hopefully Luke would agree I did a pretty good job without that experience so i think changing our hiring practices and being much more open-minded about looking for skills rather than experience would be a great enabler to allow that to happen and regardless of where you're working in an organization with the increase in technology you need people with skills rather than experience you need people with open-mindedness creativity um you know Ability to learn technical detail, but also see the big picture and how it fits in with business needs strategically. Um, and you need people that can adapt and be flexible because the only thing that we're certain of is that change is going to happen. So rather than focusing on kind of defined characteristics or experiences, let's look at skills and let's be holistic about how we how we hire people and how we choose who we want to take on roles. Absolutely perfect, because it goes to your, your, your point uh, before, Maria, about diversity within teams. We yeah. only get that diversity when you embrace different cultures, different different methods of doing things, you know, and different people, because, you know, perfect example, you know, I didn't have a degree for the majority of my career. I went through the apprenticeship route, I went through the manual route and, and became an engineer that way. And actually what was happening was I was breaking down those barriers to say, actually, you need a degree to apply for this position and now we're still getting those positions. And actually, we need to be able to open up and rethink that structure that we put around these jobs. Because as you said, Leah, it's about skills and it's about adaptability and it's about being able to embrace change. Okay, so if you're an engineer, there's no such thing as a job for life anymore because technology is changing so quickly that, that you need to be able to adapt to those positions. And if you're an electrical engineer, you can't be an electrical engineer for your entire life. You need to learn about uh, mechanics. And, you know, a perfect example would be a mechanic. They now need to be an electrical engineer as, as well as mechanic. You know, 10 years ago, they didn't need to be that. I, th- I think also you're, you know, attracting people from a wide variety of, of backgrounds, given, given the fast pace uh, of change at the mm-hmm. moment with business models, the, the change uh, is happening so dramatically, so quickly. I think no doubt any generation before us would probably sit there and say, yeah, we experience change because change is just the nature of the game. We all experience change. But I think one thing that is fundamentally different to any other uh, decade perhaps is the pace. 
the fact that the technology is evolving, it's creating new business models, disruption is happening far quicker than we have ever seen. And so as a result, getting that diversity, you might hire people with a background in, uh, I don't know, playing video games for all you know, and that could be the, uh, you know, somewhat, someone who's been a marketeer. I'm noticing a lot more people in the supply chain talking to more people in marketing these days than I have ever before. So that's why it's important to work with people like yourselves, I guess, to be able to collaborate and change a company from within, change the manufacturing spectrum from within, uh, and uh, drive that change, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's about, you know, companies need to recognize that that change, like you say, is happening, not, not just at the moment, but it's happening faster. So in five years, change will be even more faster than it is now. So what are you doing today to prepare for that? And that, that's a, it's almost a loaded question I'm asking, but they need to be able to answer that question because if they can't, then in five years' time, they're going to see themselves fall behind even further path than they're on now. Um, well, something Leah said, it's not necessarily about competitive advantage. You said no. earlier, it's about staying relevant. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and that's the danger. Yeah. If you stand still, you'll lose. Sorry, go ahead, Luke. As if, you, if you stand still as a manufacturer, in the long term, you'll lose because other people will be able to be more, more agile than you are and adapt to change faster than you can. And, and because they embrace new skills, new technology, um, you know, they, they embrace that competitive edge. And the only way you can do that is by having that agility. Yeah. yeah. yeah you were gonna another, another trend. Yeah, I was going to say another trend that I see coming through is the increased external pressure on manufacturing and I think that's going to change things a lot in the next five to ten years and one specific thing that I find super interesting is around the kind of circular supply chain and how manufacturing deals with that so I've got two specific examples of that and I'm, I'm really interested maybe in hearing you guys opinions on it so the first one would be the increase in environmental awareness and how manufacturing actually copes with um, potentially the unhomogeneous um, materials that they might have to deal with with regards to recycling. So how do they how do they receive things in from consumers potentially? How do they process those and then remanufacture to to reuse materials? I'm really interested to see how how that could work. Um, and the other example I've got more specific to my industry would be around a circular supply chain where you have a customer whose T-cells are taken, so they're a patient that needs um, a therapy. We, we take their immune cells, you know, as a company, we would have to process them in some way, and then they have to go back to the exact same patient. And if they don't go back to the exact same patient, someone's life could get put at risk. So, you know, how do manufacturing cope with kind of the circular nature of those supply chains and how can technology help us with that? I, if, if you don't mind, I was gonna mention something about this. I, I've been uh, in this industry a long time from a membership perspective, events perspective. And I remember when the conversation around uh, circular economy, sustainability started, it was a really great, great conversation that we had. But being very cynical, it was very much a soundbite thing. Uh, not a lot of money was spent on it. Not a lot of uh, investment was going into it. It was just everybody was really curious and really interested, but it was not something that people were driving well with, the, with their dollars, right? With, with, with where they were spending. I think things have changed dramatically. I think right now uh, the consumer demand, social media, uh, has changed things dramatically. So now I think companies need to take it very seriously. Uh, and that's why I'm mentioning it because I'm, I'm seeing that trend and I'm personally 
personally taking note of that as a consumer. So I, I don't think it's going to be, again, it's, it's not about remaining competitive. It's not about competitive advantage anymore. It'll be a necessity in terms of what your customer sees. I think companies need to stop with the soundbite and actually invest their time and effort into looking at alternatives. I think the circular economy is something that has to be taken very seriously. uh, And it has to be worked out like any business process and from a leadership perspective as well. Uh, And that's probably something that Luke, you can comment to. Yeah, massively. I mean, if you, if if you're running a business, right? So if you, if you look at your business and ask the question, what's the ROI on social responsibility? Well, from a business perspective, you're, you're not going to see, you know, savings or or, increased profits when you invest in social responsibility, but actually that's the thing that can cripple your business over the long term. So, you know, you're seeing SMEs now, for example, who will have recyclable, not, not just plastic, but cardboard, um, plastic uh, cardboard bottles for water rather than plastic well actually that it, it costs more from a from a from a standpoint of, of the raw materials it costs more in terms of processing but actually from a social responsibility point of view they're doing very very well and therefore they're affecting their market share on, on plastic water bottles so when you when you look at that you think actually from a business perspective it doesn't make sense but that change will happen more and more and more in the next 5, 10, 15, 50 years, in fact. And, and as Leah said, you, you're talking about mass customization in the pharmaceutical industry at the moment. That's, that's something that happened in the car industry 20, 30 years ago. You know, you've got a blue car and a yellow car and a purple car all in, all in, all in sync with each other. But that's what, just one industry. It's going to affect every single industry. So, you know, we talk about mass customization. So individual patients receiving individual medicines. You just can't mass produce anymore. It's not something that, that is going to be um, viable in the future, but actually the ROI on that needs to be needs to be questioned internally for the business. But I guess that's where new technology does come in because yeah. there's going to be mountains and mountains of data in order to process something like that. Like you said about the T cells, you need to make sure that it goes back to the right patient. Unfortunately, with the mountains of data that that is that are collected, you're going to probably need AI uh, to to manage that kind of data. But and let's let me take it back down to leadership. You need leadership that understands the business implications of AI, not implementing AI for the sake of implementing AI, you know, for ticking a box saying, hey, we've got a fancy robot in our factory, isn't that great? Uh, To actually think about what is the business value, looking at it from a circular economy perspective, looking at it from a data understanding perspective, that I think is is, is what it's about. Would you agree? And I think, I think you've hit the hail on, on the head there in terms of this whole conversation about digital transformation is exactly that. So it's looking at the entire business model and thinking, what is it we need to do? Well, actually, if we take the, the example that we're talking about here, we're talking about mass collection of data, interpret, being able to interpret that data and understand what it means, may include the AI. And then we're also talking about mass production of customized uh, um, pharmaceutical products as well. So robotics and automation come into play. And, and it's about creating that network, isn't it? So talk about digital transformation. It's not just one element. It's every single element of the organization comes into play there from supply chain, from operations, um, to patient communication. All plays a huge, huge part in that journey of transformation through the business. You know, I think we've covered quite a lot of issues here today. And, and I know we could keep talking for forever. Yeah. It'll have to be for podcast two. Uh, we've both we'll, we'll have to schedule and uh, make sure that we we color coordinate our walls you know for those 
that are watching, you know, we've decided to go with different wall colors this time around. I think we're going to, that's the next quest to find the next wall for the next podcast. Absolutely. Um, both of you, thank you so much for participating in, in this. I think there's definitely more conversation to be had around the, uh, the role of digital transformation, how leadership and culture plays into this. Uh, and, uh, you know, within manufacturing is also a very important topic, diversity, and uh, the way that consultants work internally with, uh, with, well, with companies internally. So thank you so much, both of you. Uh, if you would like to find out more uh, about Volta, no doubt you can reach Luke. Uh, and you will also be able to see Leah at one of our events, uh, hosting a uh, roundtable, I think. So uh, thank you very much for, um, for appearing on FinTV. I appreciate thank it. You've been great, yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. All right.